You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What, have you said, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Your worship is what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Hey, good morning, church. My name is Scott Gaskill. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I was here. I've, I've met many of you either here or at Porterbrook. Uh, what you might not know about us, or me and my wife and my family, is that uh, we sold our house in Iowa City this week, uh, and we are hoping to transition to the Quad Cities to be fellow citizens with y'all, not only in the kingdom of God, uh, but here uh, in the Quad Cities. Uh, Lord willing, our kids are going to be uh, students at Morningstar Academy where Sam serves on the school board. He's uh, been a blessing. Uh, Sam is a great friend, but uh, I just want to take a moment and make sure y'all know Sam is a great pastor, y'all. And so, uh, you know, that is uh, not something that he can say about himself when he's up here. Uh, but it's something that I think uh, in, you know, the, the vibe of Romans 12, where it talks about outdoing one another and showing honor, it should be something uh, that we as God's people uh, do on a regular basis to honor one another. So just be thankful uh, for him. Pray for him that he might get good rest being out of the pulpit here for a couple weeks. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, it's easy for me to say yes and be like, hey, I want to be here and step in for a couple weeks. Uh, is because I know the labor that it is to plant a church and to pastor a church. Uh, it's, a, it's a labor that is to be honored uh, and exalted. Uh, and, and so we just want to do that even before we step in this morning. Well, it's uh, an honor for me to be here to preach God's word. Uh, it's even more of an honor that I get to step in when y'all are in the gospel of John because uh, I said this this morning downstairs when we were praying, uh, you're not supposed to have favorites, but the gospel of John is my favorite, y'all. Uh, this is about the easiest ask for me, stepping in to preach. Uh, it's the first book I ever read in the Bible. It's where Jesus uh, came alive. The person of Jesus uh, was just lit like a fire for me uh, through the gospel of John. And so uh, as we enter in here, I just want to set the table for you a little bit, okay? Uh, it was a couple weeks for me. Uh, our family's been going over to uh, um, Sacred City, Davenport uh, for a while now. So it was just a couple weeks ago for me, from Rob, from you, from Sam, uh, that we talked about Nicodemus, right? And Nicodemus is kind of on the other side of the spiritual spectrum from the woman that we're going to be talking about today, right? Uh, Nicodemus, a couple of years, weeks ago, we talked about this odd conversation that Jesus had with him about being reborn. And uh, you know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee with a really moralistic, religious, spiritual background. And Jesus met this dude who was a religious insider with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Well, this morning... We get to look at the other end of the spectrum, right? And this interesting conversation that Jesus had, this time not with an insider. Now, nobody in their right mind would have accused this Samaritan woman from being an insider. Today's text gives us an up-close and personal look at the way that Jesus brought the good news of the gospel to bear on a complete outsider. So I don't know about y'all, but I can relate a little bit more with her than I can with Nicodemus due to my rebellious uh, nature in, in my upbringing. But today we're going to look together at a conversation that Jesus had with this Samaritan woman at a well. What we're going to see is that an unnamed woman at a well brings to life for us the theology that Sam was teaching back in June from John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, when he told us, don't trust your hearts. She's like a case study on the way that Jesus knows what's in our hearts. Church, I'm convinced that God knows our hearts far better than we do. Are you convinced of that? You see, he knows that we not only need propositional truths for our spiritual growth, but we need to see it lived out as well. 
I think this is one reason why the incarnation is so powerful, right? Is that we know things about God, but in the incarnate one, Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see it lived out. We need these powerful pictures in our lives. You see, many times in my life, I've known a propositional truth, but the moment when that truth took root in my life and began to bear fruit was when I saw it lived out in someone's life. And so this truth from John 2, 23 to 25 is put to life here for us. One such moment like this in my life came about at a Promise Keepers conference that I went to when I was 19 years old with my dad at the beginning of my sophomore year in college. You see, what you might not know about my life is that I spent the first 19 years of it in utter rebellion, okay? Pushing against every authority, not wanting to do what anyone told me. Most of my freshman year in college uh, was that played out on the hill at, at the University of Northern Iowa, uh, and I just did what I wanted to do over and over again on a loop. It's a good thing that I didn't have any skills with the ladies in that season because I would have had a major problem with promiscuity. Instead, I had this problem with lust in my heart. You see, I knew in my head what sexual immorality was for the most part, but knowing that information had done very little to change my heart or the desires of my heart during my freshman year of college. Can I tell you what did bring about that change? It was an experience that I had at this Promise Keepers conference. First and foremost, it was an experience I had with the person of Jesus Christ. That was the weekend that I met Jesus, that, that the gospel was preached, that it came to life for me, that I turned literally to my dad next to me. And this guy up front said, turn to the person next to you and ask him, do you want to receive Jesus? And my dad and I both in tears, you know, like I turned to him and, and that was the day that the lights came on. So first and foremost, it's an experience I had with the person of Jesus Christ. But that experience was tied tightly with this image that I couldn't shake, that, that really uh, curbed lust in, in my life in a lot of ways for the next decade. And it was that weekend in this arena in St. Paul, Minnesota, with 33,000 other men that whoever the guy was up front, I don't remember his name, but I remember him calling us to purity. I remember him calling us to be men after God's own heart. I remember him calling us to turn from sexual immorality and to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. I remember him highlighting the problem of idolatry for men and, 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 and husbands and dads and I remember in that arena over 500 men getting up out of their seats, walking down in front of the other 32,800 men, going down in front and receiving prayer as they repented of their adultery and turned back to Jesus to worship him alone. Y'all, that image, and that experience, that put flesh to this problem of lust that I had, it gave me a chance to look down the river of my life and see that my future family one day could really be wrecked if I didn't get in, in control of this, or, or better illustration, right? Or if Jesus didn't get in control of this. And that day with those men, I just turned from it instead of having to go through what they did so that I could worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. 
You see, that experience, that, that living illustration took this propositional truth and sank it deep in my heart. I tell you this this morning because today's text takes this propositional truth of John 2, 23 to 25 about Jesus knowing what's in our hearts and it illustrates it for us in living form through this Samaritan woman. Many of you, like me, have spent much of our lives chasing after something that our hearts have told us would give us life, but we need to turn from that pursuit and find life in Jesus' name. You see, this morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear that because Jesus is the Messiah, we must quench our thirst with the living water that he offers and worship him alone in spirit and in truth. My sermon title for this morning is Inviting Jesus into the Attic of Our Hearts. You see, in today's text, we're going to see that Jesus knows what's in the heart of man, that we're very guarded when it comes to the attic of our hearts, and that we may not be able to trust our hearts, but y'all, we can trust Jesus. Will y'all pray with me? God, as we enter into your word this morning, uh, it's our desire that we would see your face and that we would hear from you. And I'll admit as a sinful and broken man, there's nothing that I bring in and of myself that can do that. But God, I I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, that you would mold me into your mouthpiece yet again this morning, that you would speak to me and that you would give us each soft hearts to hear whatever it is that you want us to hear from you this morning. Would you do that work? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all, this is where we're going to start out this morning. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. I'm not going to take a ton of time to explain that over again because I already told y'all, y'all got a great pastor who preached a better sermon on what's in the heart of man and how Jesus knows it than I could. You need to go back and listen to that one. Uh, It's in June uh, if you you haven't. But I do want to take a look at it briefly. In John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, when Jesus was there, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. In this case, he did not entrust himself to these people at the Passover feast because their belief in him, their faith in him, was somewhat of a counterfeit faith because of the signs that Jesus was doing. But I want you to keep that in mind as we think about the illustration of this woman because he acts acts differently toward her, even though he does know what's in her heart. You see, Jesus not only knows what's in the heart of man, but Jesus knows what's in the heart of this unnamed woman that he had never met before at a well in Sychar. You see, in the middle of their first ever conversation, Jesus in verses 16 to 18 says, hey, go call your husband and come here. Y'all, he's not making a dig at her. He's not trying to push her away. He says, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, well, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see, what he's trying to do is show her that he already knows what's in the attic of her heart. 
Sacred City, we're going to spend more time walking through this story, but at this point, it's safe to say Jesus knew what was in this woman's heart. He didn't need, he didn't know because he had this power of deduction like like Sherlock or Enola Holmes that he looked at something on, on her shirt sleeve and it was a hair and that hair told him something about something that she'd been doing and therefore he knew this about her heart. No, no, no. He didn't need some superpower of deduction. He knew Think back with me to the prologue of John's gospel because all things were created by him and through him, including this unnamed woman that he hadn't set eyes on on earth yet. He knew because of what we know from Psalm 139 that Jesus had formed this woman's inward parts, her very heart. He knitted her together in her mother's womb. And what we really need to believe this morning is not just that Jesus knows what's in the heart of man up here, lofty idea, propositional truth, or that Jesus knows what's in this woman's heart, but we need to believe this morning that Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knows what you brought with you this morning in your heart. See, there's this illustration that I want to build around this morning that I learned when I was like a baby Christian uh, from this dude named John Payton that taught me how to read my Bible and how to pray and how to memorize scripture and how to walk with Jesus. He handed me this little packet one time called My Heart, Christ's Home. And, and, and don't worry about the theology in this thing, man. It's just setting, this, it's setting an illustration for us, okay? So if, if some of it sounds a little bit off, don't worry about that. Just think about the illustration, Okay. Live in the illustration. It starts like this. It says, one evening, I invited Jesus into my heart. I know that makes you uncomfortable. Someone else that phrase, okay? Keep going, okay? What an entrance it made. He made. It was not a spectacular, emotional thing, but very real. Something happened at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart, and he turned the light on. He built a fire on the hearth and he banished the chill. He started music where there has been stillness and he filled the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I have never regretted opening the door to Christ and I never will. Uh, In the new joy of this new relationship, I said to Jesus Christ, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want to have you settle down here and be perfectly at home. Everything I have belongs to you. Let me show you around. And as his story continues, it uses uh, the, the rooms of a home to illustrate different parts of our lives and bringing them under the lordship of Christ. And so the story starts in the study, right? And it represents our thought life. And, and, and Jesus sees some things on the table that he's reading that maybe he shouldn't be reading. And he's like, maybe I should put those away for Jesus. And, and, it, and it shifts the way that he's thinking. And he wants Jesus to be Lord in his thought life. And then he takes them and they go to the rec room and and that represents something else. And he takes them to the work room and that represents something else. And the idea is that each part of his life is being brought under the lordship of Jesus. And the last stop they make is in this, uh, uh, this closet in the hallway. We're gonna call it the attic this morning. And this is what it says about the attic. It says, one day I found Jesus waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. And as I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in this house. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the attic. Well, as soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. There was a small closet up there on the hall landing, just a few feet square in that closet behind lock and key. 
I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about. In this story, the attic was the last room that Jesus was given the keys to. And after handing them over, the man has this realization. He says, why don't I just transfer the whole title over to Jesus? Why don't I just ask him to manage all of my heart? Sacred City, I think God wants to remind each one of us this morning that Jesus already knows what's up in that attic in your heart. But there's much good that comes from inviting him in to taking out with him the heinous and the hidden sin found there. Because if God's been exposing sin in our lives, we need not pull back into the darkness. Rather, we must press forward into Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the way this unnamed woman does. But before we wade into the details of this conversation, I just want to ask you a question. When this Samaritan woman's heart was exposed before the very Son of God, she pressed forward into the light of the world. Why is it that we don't do that? Why do we get so uncomfortable when we think about opening the attic of our hearts up to God? Let me ask this another way. Why in this little illustration is this the only room in the house that has its own special lock and key? Why are these things guarded in an attempt to keep Jesus out? Well, as we begin to think about the question, hopefully we can at least agree that we all are a little bit guarded when it comes to the attic of our hearts, right? Some of us are guarded because of the wicked things that we've done. That's what it says in John chapter 3, verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Right? We know that the things that we've done are evil and dark, and we know that if we come too close to the light, that the, that light's going to shine us, and people are going to see those things. Some of us are guarded because of the wicked things that we've done, but some of us are guarded because of the wicked things that have been done to us. Some of us used to be more open about the articles in the attic of our hearts, but at some point, someone in our lives took what they knew about us and they used it to hurt us deeply. Or maybe you used to be less guarded before you experienced the abandonment of people who knew you intimately, but when they left, it was like that part of you left with them. Others of us have had done things done to us that fill us with shame, and we've, we've a hard time even imagining what it would be like to let anyone into our attic. Church, I want you to see this morning that this unnamed Samaritan woman, she had all the reasons to be guarded. She could have had her guard up in every way when it came to having a conversation with the Jewish man. Look at the text with me, verses seven and nine. Here it is. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Okay, by the way, my favorite thing about the Gospel of John is that he's super obvious, okay? He tells us why he wrote the book, right? That he, but my second favorite thing about the Gospel of John is all these parentheticals that he gives us these author's notes so you can read between the lines because I'm not very good at that, okay? So he lets us do it. So read that this way in these parentheticals. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. You're like, oh, thanks for telling us, you know? Uh, and then you're like, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And you're like, why did she ask that question? And he's like in parenthetical here, for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Thanks, John. Thanks for telling us. You see, this woman could have been guarded, y'all, simply because she was a woman. 
We're going to get to this next week. But verse 27 says that his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman. It doesn't say that they marveled because he was talking to this specific woman. It says they marveled just because he was talking to a woman. You see, it would have been unusual in, in Jesus' day and age for a rabbi or any Jewish man to converse publicly with a woman. Jewish teaching warned against spending too much time of talking to a woman because of temptation and the appearance of impropriety. So in this case, this woman was taking a risk by stepping into this conversation with a Jewish man. She could have just kept her guard up, but she didn't. You see, this woman could have been guarded simply because of her ethnicity. If you see in the text, she's a Samaritan and Jesus is a Jew. By definition, a woman of Samaria was of a different race or ethnicity than Jesus. Jesus was Jewish by birth, and the Samaritans, on the other hand, were a racially mixed group of partly Jewish and partly Gentile ancestry who were disdained by both Jews and non-Jews alike. You see, after Assyria came in and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the king of Assyria brought foreign people to settle in Samaria, and over time they'd intermarried with some of the Jewish people left there. Samaritans were considered by many Jews to be in a continual state of uncleanness. Thus, they would have thought that drinking water from her water jar would make a person ceremonially unclean. You see, this woman had reason to be guarded around a Jewish man because she was a woman, but she also had reason to be guarded around this man because at any moment he could have declared her unclean. She had more reasons than that. This woman could have been guarded simply because of her religious beliefs. You see, Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch, y'all, their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and their own rendering of Israelite history. Tensions between Israelites and Jews got so heated that they had to call in Roman soldiers to help deal with this at times. If these kind of theological tensions are at bay, y'all, she could have been guarded and just stayed away from a dude like this that thought things that she didn't think. So there wouldn't be any conflict, but she didn't keep her guard up. You see, but the probably most heart-level reason why she could have been guarded is because, y'all, she did have some things in the attic of her heart, right? Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Y'all, here's the deal. Jewish readers of John's gospel, they'd have been astonished that Jesus was talking to this woman, uh, but they would have been even more floored, knocked on their butts, you might say, by Jesus talking to this specific woman because they could read between the lines in a way that we couldn't read between the lines. You see, the sixth hour meant that it was like noon. Y'all, noon's when it's like really hot, right? So if you were to have a preference in the time that you were going to go draw water at a well, a woman would probably go early in the morning or late at night. It's like what we do if we want to go out for a jog, right? You're not going to go out and jog between 12 and 3 because you're just going to sweat the most. You want to go at the convenient times. Well, the fact is, scholars believe that this woman was probably at the well at the hottest time of the day to be avoided or to avoid being seen by others because of her promiscuity. It may have even been vocational for her, if you know what I mean. 
You see, this woman had all the reasons to be guarded against a Jewish man when they met at the well, but by God's grace, this was not your average Jewish man. She was met at the well that day by none other than Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the one that John wrote this whole gospel about so that his readers would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and find life in his name. And this is where I think it's really key for us to understand that we may not be able to trust our hearts like this woman, right? She knew what was going on inside of her. She knew what she brought to the table in this conversation. But I want us to see that even if we can't trust our hearts, we can trust Jesus. You see, Jesus entrusted himself to her even though he didn't trust her faith. Remember back in chapter two when he didn't entrust himself to those people with their faith? Well, here Jesus entrusts himself to her even though he didn't trust her faith. You see, I believe that this woman let her guard down in a large part because Jesus knew what was in her heart, yet he still entrusted himself to her. That's why I want to set, uh, uh, take a moment here to see that in regards to Jesus and his intent, he was intending to speak to this woman the entire time. Look at chapter 4 and the first four verses. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, right? Uh, Jesus must increase, but John must decrease. Wasn't that last week, right? That's happening, and they're noticing. And although Jesus didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, okay? Judea is like here in the south. Galilee's here in the north. Samaria's in between. And verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria, Y'all, if we were to do our homework on the map, you'd think if we had a, are they called cartologists? Is that what somebody that studies maps is called, right? Uh, they would tell you, yeah, you have to pass through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. That's what they would say. Just like it was written here in John's gospel. But if we were to bring in a theologian in the first century, they would very much so say something different. The, the strict Jewish theologian would say, no, 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 we don't have to pass through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. We have to go around Samaria in order to get to Galilee. Because strict Jews had no dealings. Remember verse 9 in the parentheses, in these nice notes that John writes us so that we can understand what's going on? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, Jews, strict Jews in the first century would have said, no, 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 we have to go around Samaria. But John in verse 4 records, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Translation, Jesus' itinerary was subject to the sovereign and providential plan of God. Translation, there was a harvest that needed to be reaped in Samaria, and Jesus was about to bring the best combine you ever saw. Translation, there was an unnamed woman in Samaria whom God intended to save, and Jesus fully intended to be her savior. This was his intention every step of the way. So how did this happen? Well, first, we need to see this was no chance encounter. This entire conversation happened according to God's sovereign plan. Jesus came to this woman and entrusted himself to her before she let her guard down. Y'all, in the same way, this is no chance encounter with Jesus Christ through his word this morning. 
He fully intends to speak to each and every one of us here. And when he does, he intends to offer us just what he offered this woman. Jesus offered her life in his name. You see, Jesus didn't fool around in conversations, church. We don't even know this woman's name, but Jesus knew exactly who she was. We don't know exactly why she was coming to the well during the hottest part of the day. That's why I said scholars say this is why she's coming at the hottest part of the day. But Jesus knew what was in her heart. Keep in mind that as we read about Jesus offering this woman this incredible gift, Jesus takes this physical reality that we have in our world, right? We all get thirsty, right? You do a workout, you get thirsty, you need some water. All of us have human thirst. But he takes that and he turns it into a spiritual conversation about this spiritual thirst that's deep inside each one of our hearts that we try to put off differently than our physical needs. Look at verses 7 to 15 and see how Jesus does that in this masterful conversation. This woman came from, uh, from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy food in the city, right? Uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. You don't even have a bucket, right? And the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank it from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the wooden woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Y'all, there's a physical conversation happening about water. Jesus literally asks her for a drink of water. He literally asks her for a drink of water from a well that was built by Jacob, a really important figure in Jewish history, right? And this woman, at least at first, believes Jesus to be talking about a physical thirst for water. When Jesus first mentions living water, what she's probably thinking of is uh, as opposed to like a pool that doesn't move at all, she's thinking of water that comes from a stream. It's living, it's moving, right? But there's a spiritual conversation happening here. Jesus seems to be pointing out that all humans have a longing, a, a thirst inside of them that cannot be met by created things, a hunger inside of us that won't be tamed by food, a desire that we can't satisfy on our own. And he gets this woman wondering, where must she go to quench this thirst? Why does she keep going back over and over again to the same source to quench the longing inside of her the same way that she keeps coming day after day to this well to meet this physical thirst? Y'all, I don't know about you, but this story always pulled on my heartstrings. 
When I was taught to share my testimony in college for the first time, it was like this. I would tell people about how I spent 19 years of my life chasing after something that would satisfy me. For the most part, uh, when I was in high school, I, I tried to do it through the good things, you know, that my parents said were okay. Like I wanted to play sports and I wanted a story and I wanted to, to be known and I wanted people to think that I was great. And then uh, after high school, I started doing it in the things that weren't so great and that my parents didn't say were okay, uh, uh, drinking and imbibing and things like this. And uh, I spent 19 years of my life as an absolute hedonist. If I thought it could quench my thirst, I wanted it. If I thought it could tame my hunger, I tried to get it. And to be honest, no matter how hard I tried or how much I drank, I came up wanting more. Y'all relate to that story at all? Until I met Jesus. You see, Jesus is the giver of living water. If you receive the eternal and abundant life offered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, then you will never need to find a new life source. There's life in Jesus' name that's better than you could find in any other name. And he offers this gift as a free gift. Remember, Jesus knew what was in this woman's heart. He knew where her hedonism had taken her, and he knew that it was not pretty. But that did not stop him from entrusting himself to her. And it's not stopped him from entrusting himself to you because Jesus did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. He came to seek and to save the lost like this woman, like me, and like you. And all we need to do to receive the life that Jesus offers is to put down our buckets or our water jars, to turn from our hedonism, and to receive the gift of God in Christ Jesus. Because here's the deal, y'all. On the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus has done everything necessary to forgive us of whatever it is in the attic of our hearts that we're trying to hide from him. All he asks is that we would come to him and ask forgiveness and receive it in Christ, that we would put down those water jars, that we would turn from that hedonism, and that we would fully quench our thirst in Jesus as Christian hedonists. You might say, Pastor, like, how do you do that? Like, what in the heck does that look like? Well, I don't think it looks all that much different than my hedonism, per se, for the first 19 years of my life, just with a few good built-in filter questions, Okay. Instead of just going after those desires, what if we first asked every time we had one of those desires to quench our thirst, this desire, uh, God, is it from you? Are, are you the one that gave me this desire? And then we actually took time to listen for the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word and tell us if it's from him or not. What if then, if it is from God, then we took the time to ask the question, okay, God, how do you intend for me to satisfy this desire then? And wait for the Holy Spirit to speak to us through the word of God to answer us. Because we sang this this morning, y'all. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, being satisfied in him long enough, it, will, it is enough to tame even the most ungodly desires in our hearts if we would only keep our eyes fixed on him, if he would truly be the apple of our eye. If we stay focused on him, he will transform us, scripture says, from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus. You see, there's one contrast going on here between physical water and living water, but there's a second contrast going on here between Jesus and Jacob as the givers of water. You see, the incredible irony here is the way that she talks to Jesus in this is she thinks Jacob is actually greater than the one standing in front of her, not knowing that Jesus only offers, not only offers better water than Jacob's well, but Jesus is far greater than Jacob himself. You see, if she knew that, she wouldn't have still had these doubts that Jesus helps her deal with. Notice this woman, she's not like uh, Mary's sister, or Martha's sister Mary, who just got down on the ground on hands and knees, and she worshiped Jesus the second that he walked through her door. Don't get me wrong, this Samaritan woman, she picks up on things pretty fast in the first conversation, right? But she doesn't just drop and worship right away. She has a few questions that she asks along the way. You might even say there were doubts. Look at the, the side of the conversation that doesn't have red letters so far, okay? Just this stuff that this woman says. First, she asks a really reasonable question. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Next, she notices that Jesus doesn't have a physical tool to draw water, so she asks him about it, and she says something about the wall. well. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And the third thing she says is, give me this water. And that's when Jesus began helping this woman tear down the walls that she'd built up around her heart that had kept her from worshiping God. See if you can pick out what the walls are around this woman's heart as we go from 16 to 26. Jesus says to this woman, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship at the Father or worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell, you all thing, tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, Am he. Do you see the walls that were built up around her heart? Here's the first one, y'all. Wall number one is when she says, I have no husband. In that phrase, when, when Jesus then tells her, yeah, you had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't your husband, he's revealing to her the aim of her worship. The thing that had kept her from worshiping Jesus is that she is worshiping an idol, something other than God. Her, aim, the, her worship is aimed in the wrong place. That's wall number one. The second one is when she says, well, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm not worshiping the wrong thing. She feels exposed a little bit, right? Her idol is exposed. Uh, and she's like, well, our fathers worshiped on this mountain over here. And she starts to talk about the location of her worship. 
Because isn't that what we all do? That when our hearts are exposed, we want to talk about something else. We want to get the topic over here. Instead of talking about heart level things, we want to talk about theological things sometimes in order to get it off of our hearts. And then the third wall shows, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. And it shows she doesn't even know the one that she's supposed to be looking for and that she should worship. You see, this is when this water conversation turns into a worship conversation. At first glance, we might think that the worship conversation starts in verse 20, but the real worship conversation starts in verse 15. You see, this woman leans in and she says, give me some of that living water, Jesus. And he's like, hold up. I know where you have been aiming that worship thing that you've got going on. We need to stop and we need to deal with this here for a moment before you can have this water. But in order to be on the same page about that, we need to be on the same page about worship. You see, worship's not merely something we do on Sunday mornings in church buildings. Uh, My man Paul Tripp says it like this, okay? He says, I want to encourage those actions. He's talking about actions like outward actions of worship because they're biblical. But he says, but you need to consider your worship as an identity before you think of it as an activity. Let that set in for a second. You, the worshiper, are always attaching your identity, your meaning, your well-being, and sense of purpose to something or someone. This woman had tried to attach her identity to husband after husband, right? And Paul Tripp says, and where a worshiper finds his or her identity, there they'll find practical ways to worship. Another way of saying that that is this, something or someone is always ruling the heart of a worshiper. Since the Bible says the heart is the control center of the human being, whatever rules your heart will automatically exercise control over your desires, thoughts, words, and actions. Church, in the language of this conversation, worship is going to quench the inner desires of your heart in something. Worshiping God is going to God to quench this inner thirst that you've always had. In this sense of the word, hopefully you can see that worship isn't something that we're doing. Uh, this worship is something we're doing all the time in every moment. The question isn't whether or not we're worshiping, but who and what we are worshiping. What is the aim of our worship? Y'all, I am not going to think that I can tell from the outside what it is that this woman is worshiping, but y'all, she was aiming it at men, specifically husbands uh, that she was in relationship with over and over again to get whatever it was that she was worshiping. I believe she knew in her heart that this was not right. And sometimes when we know those things, when those things in the attic of our hearts are exposed, we put up walls, right? And we're like, we keep people out because we don't want anyone to know these evil deeds that we've done in the dark. But Jesus broke right through that wall with his love. Jesus, the light of the world, shined into the darkness of her heart. He entrusted himself to her. And that's when she entrusted himself or herself to him. Y'all, we need to receive Jesus' love. We need to let him shine his light into our hearts. And we need to repent, which is simply turning from whatever it is we were aiming our worship at and aiming that worship back at him. You see, Jesus is just pointing out this woman's idolatry. And in so doing, he's giving her an opportunity to repent. But this woman wasn't just ready yet, right? 
She still threw up that wall. She tried to make it into a theological conversation. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. This woman wants to talk about where we worship because she didn't want to talk about right away what was going on in her heart. But Jesus flips that on its head. Jesus tells this woman that worship isn't done on mountains and in temples. Worship is first and foremost something that happens in your heart. And he brings it right back to the heart, doesn't he? He says, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. He says in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He says, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. They aim their worship at Jesus, and in other words, they worship the true God, not idols, from a true and authentic heart. He says, true worshipers worship in spirit. That true worshipers aim their worship at Jesus and they worship not mere outward observance of rules or doing the right things, but exalting God in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for him, this is a both and. It's, it's not an either or. You see, God is seeking worshipers. Did you see that in the text when he says, God is seeking worshipers? Y'all, I never read the comic book version of this story in, in those kids' Bibles. You know how they have those kids' comic book Bibles? But my guess is that if you were reading this story, this is when the light bulb would go on above this woman's head. When he says true, like he says God-seeking worshipers. It's like, bink. It's like if you were, if this woman was on uh, that, that uh, extreme home makeover show, right? Uh, this would be the moment when the truck moves and she sees the house for the first time. This is the moment in a romantic comedy uh, when the woman that the whole story is about for the first time sees that this dude that she's been interacting with for the entire movie that's been doing nice things to her, he actually is the one, right? You see, when Jesus pointed out that God's seeking worshipers, that thought had to have tied into a story that she already knew. That story is the grand story of redemption. It's the story about a hero, a rescuer, a Messiah who is going to come one day and sit on the throne of David forever. That's why she says, I know, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he's going to tell us all things. You see, she knew the story, but there's no way that she could have seen what was coming next. Because Jesus wasn't just there to talk to her about the hero. In seven words, this conversation sneaks up on this Samaritan woman. When Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Count it out. I didn't do it on my fingers, but that's seven words, okay? How did this conversation sneak up on this Samaritan woman? I think it's because the whole time that she's talking to by Jesus, she's still identified as an outsider in her heart. She thought that the Messiah was coming for someone else. Sure, at some point, she may have realized that she knew the story Jesus was talking about, but she still identified as an outsider who just knew about the story. And because of this, she tried to keep the good rabbi at a distance. But as this conversation progressed, the woman kept hearing something familiar. And it wasn't just a familiar story that she'd heard from the Old Testament. It was a familiar voice. And in the seven words that Jesus spoke then, he revealed where she'd heard this voice before. It was the very voice that had spoken her into existence. He revealed himself as the hero who had come to rescue not only the Jews, but even more so, the hero who had come to rescue her. 
You see, Jesus doesn't just want to come and talk to and be the hero for and the redeemer for the the religious insiders. The Messiah came for the outsider as well. Church, I believe that Jesus Christ wants to have a conversation like this with each and every one of us. I believe that he knows what's in the attic of our hearts, but rather than his response being one of wrath, because he also knew with this woman that he was going to the cross and he was going to take on the wrath of God poured out on sinners on that cross, amen? Instead of responding in wrath, his response was one of jealousy to this woman. He wanted her worship. He says, God's looking for worshipers. Jesus saw what was in the attic of this woman's heart and he used it to reveal the aim of her worship. And he wants to do the same for you. Because he knows that worshiping him will not only be most glorifying to God, but it's going to be far better for you than whatever it is that you've been worshiping in your day to day. You see, church, God told me to tell some of you this morning that Jesus is waiting patiently for you to invite him into the attic of your heart. He's waiting for you to invite him in to open up those boxes, to take out the heinous and the hidden sins that you've been hiding for so long and just sit there with him that you might turn the aim of your worship from those things back to him because he wants you to know that when you do that, you're going to be met with kindness and you're going to be met with mercy. Because it's God's kindness that leads to repentance, church. But even if you don't feel like you've got any skeletons up in the attic of your heart this morning, I'm confident that Jesus would love to have a worship conversation with you this morning too. You see, he's seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so I wonder, maybe this morning, maybe this afternoon would be a good time to slow down and ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify the idols in your heart. Y'all, we make them, right? John Calvin says that our hearts are like idol factories. We literally create new things to worship. Maybe we just need to slow down and ask the Holy Spirit to identify what those are in our heart right now. Maybe there's another room in the home of your heart where Christ would like to advance his his lordship, right? Maybe it's the rec room. Maybe it's the work room. Maybe it's some other room. You see, no matter where you're at this morning, This passage has me confident of one thing, that Jesus would love to enter into a conversation with you this morning, with your sin and your doubt, knowing that those things are not gonna stop him from shining his light into the darkness of your heart. You see, we may not be able to trust our own hearts, church, but we can trust Jesus. In fact, that's why Jesus has given us this perpetual reminder that we can trust him in the Lord's Supper, right? In this symbolic meal originating from Jesus' last supper with his disciples, we express and we strengthen our trust in him. As we eat and drink this morning with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we express our trust in him. We strengthen our trust in him. You see, the Lord's Supper is an outward and visible sign of the grace shown to us in the death of our Savior. As we share in bread or wine and, or, and wine or juice together, we're invited to feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. 
We're faced again with God's love for the unworthy and we're strengthened by faith in the one whose body was given and whose blood was shed for us. So this morning after I pray, we would invite you to come with heartfelt repentance and genuine trust in the Lord Jesus, recognizing the significance of sharing in the Lord's table. Will you all pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the work that you've done in our hearts. Those of us that know you know that uh, it is good to open up every room of our heart to you, that when you take residence in our lives, when your lordship uh, is known in our lives, that it's freeing, uh, that it's joyful, and that our days will be more filled with grace and mercy and kindness, with love and peace and patience than they were before because of your good managing. But God, if we've never invited you in in that way, opened the door, uh, repented and, and received your grace, God, I pray that you would do that this morning, that whatever room it is that needs to be opened up, if it's the attic, that we would hand you the keys and that we would entrust you with our hearts, knowing that we are not trustworthy with that key, but God, you are. Would you do the work that only you can do in our lives? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.